0: How to Lose Stubborn Belly Fat by Stan Eckbert, a doctor. Let's listen up. Hello, health champions. Today, we're gonna to talk about the five steps you must follow if you really wanna lose belly fat for good. Now, most people will do maybe one or two of these steps, but hardly anyone will do all five. And that is probably why so many people fail. But at the end of today's video, it will be crystal clear to you how to lose that belly fat for good. The first step is to understand all of the key issues involved and not fall for all of the myths and misconceptions that are floating around. So first of all, the very idea of a diet is ridiculous because the idea of a diet is that you do something for a period of time and you feel like you can really beat yourself up if it's for a limited time, but then you think after the diet, you're gonna go do something else, which means you're gonna go back to doing all those things that created the problem in the first place. So never ever do a diet again. Whatever changes you make, they should be forming a lifestyle, something that you can maintain for the rest of your life. Next, we need to understand the law of thermodynamics and this is often quoted as being about calories in and calories out but it turns out it's not about calories in calories out not the way people think and not the way they quote it what it really comes down to is metabolism how your body uses energy perception at the cellular level how your cells perceive your environment and adapt to it how your hormones are influenced by the food you eat and how those hormones affect your behavior and your hunger which influences how much you eat. What we hear all the time is that it is all about calories in versus calories out. And we're talking about calories in being how much food we eat And calories out being how much we burn in terms of exercise. And they're saying if calories in is less than calories out, then that always results in weight loss. We lose weight. And then they do the math. And they say that if you're eating 2,000 calories and you're maintaining a steady weight of 200 pounds, then if you increase your exercise. You either decrease your calories in or you increase your calories out. So in this example, we'll just say that you increase your exercise by 500 calories per day. So that's what a reasonably fit person can do in about one hour of exercise. Seven days a week, 3500 calories, that's one pound of fat loss per week. And then we do the math on that. So we lose one pound per week and we keep this up now for four years. Four years is a little over 200 weeks, but we'll round that off to 200. And then we do the math. So we lose one pound a week for 200 weeks. And now we have lost 200 pounds and you weigh exactly zero. So congratulations, you have completely disappeared. So we all know how absurd that is because we know somewhere along the line, we might lose a few pounds in the beginning, but somewhere along the line, something's going to change because you could still eat 2000 calories and exercise and not disappear. So does that violate the law of thermodynamics? No. We just have to realize that some of these components have subparts. so if we take calories out for example then we do calories out and we break that down and we realize that calories out equals your exercise plus your basal metabolic rate so your total expenditure of energy is your basal metabolic rate, which is how much energy your cells use at rest. All of your tissues, all your organs, your brain, your liver, your kidneys, they have a certain baseline activity, and that's the BMR. Then the movement, the physical activity that you do, we add on top of it, and that's the total of calories out. So would it be possible that The calories out stays constant, but when we increase the exercise by 500, would it be possible that we decrease the basal metabolic rate by 500? Not only is it possible, but it is absolutely necessary and inevitable. And it happens every time because otherwise you would disappear. And since you don't, we know that something's got to give, and this is exactly what happens. So that explains about the metabolism, why that can change and why it has to change. And perception feeds into that because you have a cellular perception. Your body is really intelligent. So if you eat the same, but you start spending more energy and you start losing a few pounds, now at some point along that journey, your cells, your, the sum total of your cells called your body and your homeostasis is going to have the perception of lack. They're going to say, I'm really worried. I used to eat this much and stay stable, but now you're using more energy. It has to come from somewhere. So it experiences lack and that is where we change, we reduce our basal metabolic rate. So I'm sure you can see how completely illogical it is to think that we could increase exercise by 500 and nothing else would change, that all the other variables would just keep on doing whatever they've been doing. And then some people might say, well, I don't think my body should experience lack because I have so much energy stored. I have several hundred thousand calories of energy stored. I have a veritable fortune in energy. Why is my body still experiencing lack? And now we're getting into the hormones because different types of foods will trigger and stimulate different types of hormones. And some of these hormones are going to have more of a tendency to store fat and prevent the release of fat. And if we have a lot of those. then our body will still experience lack because this fortune of energy is hidden and if we can't see it we will still experience lack so these types of food will contribute to that sense of lack and we also need to understand never ever to compare ourselves to someone else and say they did this they got those results then I should get those same results. Or the other way around, someone is gonna leave a comment on this video and say, no, this is not how it works. It's all about calories in, calories out, because I just increased my exercise or I just cut my sugar out or decreased my calories. I just did one thing and I got tremendous results. And then that person will assume that it's gonna work that way for everyone else. And because it worked for them, then he's gonna call everyone else lazy and gluttonous. But we have to understand that we have a wide spectrum of genetics, that there is an insulin sensitive population and there's an insulin resistant population, and this is a continuum. So if someone is relatively fortunate genetically, they may just be able to change one thing, but this person, is nothing like this person over here. You cannot compare these two people and assume that they're gonna have any similarity in their results. So you have to do this for you and don't get discouraged or don't judge other people because they don't get your results. And when we talk about food affecting hormones, there is one hormone in particular that we're talking about and that's insulin. So we have to understand what insulin does and how to reduce it. So we hear so much about insulin and insulin resistance that sometimes people wonder, well, why is there such a thing at all if it's creating all these problems, but we absolutely have to have it. It's a necessary, vital hormone. And if you can't make that hormone, which happens in some people, then they're called type 1 diabetics and even just a hundred years ago before they knew how to manufacture insulin type 1 diabetics typically died very very quickly so if you don't have insulin you cannot take the glucose from the blood into the cell so you eat food it gets into the blood but it does you no good whatsoever until it gets into the cell that's what insulin does, but it needs to be in balance. Next, we need to understand that insulin is an anabolic hormone. Anabolic means to build up and to store, to create more tissue. Catabolic is the opposite. That means to break down or reduce. So insulin is necessary even for that reason. It's anabolic. So it helps us build tissue. It helps us store fat. But if we get too much fat storage, if we get too much insulin, then that's a problem. And if we have high levels of insulin, now because it is fat storing and because it prevents fat burning, then we also can't get to these fat stores and that's where that lack comes from. And therefore, high levels of insulin will also make you more hungry. Because if you experience lack because you can't see the stored energy, but at the same time you're trying to use more energy, now your body is desperately going to try to make you eat more, to increase your calories in. And how hungry you get is going to depend a lot on where you are on this insulin-sensitive, insulin-resistant spectrum. So the person on the insulin-sensitive side is relatively willing to spend energy Whereas the insulin resistant person refuses, their body refuses to use energy. So the insulin resistant person is probably gonna be 10 times more hungry after spending the same amount of energy that an insulin sensitive person would be. And therefore high levels of insulin will also reduce your basal metabolic rate by the same amount that your insulin resistance. And here is how food triggers insulin. So if you eat fat, it's going to trigger a tiny, 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 barely measurable amount of insulin. If you eat protein, it's going to increase to a moderate, slight to moderate amounts. But if you eat carbohydrate, it's going to be many, many times more of a response than either protein or fat. So here's a question for you. If this is how the different foods stimulate insulin and you're trying to reduce insulin, which one would be the first food that you want to cut back on? Would it be fat, protein, or carbohydrates? And the answer, of course, is carbohydrate. It is such a no brainer. If carbohydrates stimulate this much insulin and we want to reduce insulin, that's the first thing we want to change. But this still seems to be a mystery because the standard guidelines, the mainstream guidelines still tell us to eat low fat and to eat a diet rich in carbohydrates with lots of grain. So let me show you in picture form what this would look like. If you eat food with lots of carbohydrates, then you're going to get a blood glucose spike. And then, of course, insulin is going to respond in kind, so we get an increase. It's gonna be delayed a little bit because it takes a while before the body sort of recognizes that there's a bunch of carbohydrates, but then it rises in parallel, and then by the time the carbohydrates peak and the insulin peaks, it's gonna push those carbs down, but insulin is going to remain behind a little bit. It's going to lag behind a little bit. Now contrast that with eating a meal with low in carbohydrates, that would look something like this. So it's the difference between throwing gasoline on a fire or throwing a log on the fire. The gasoline is going to expel all its energy all at once, whereas the log is going to take much, much longer. It's going to deliver its heat over a longer period of time, much more gentle. And then the insulin is going to rise and it's going to peak at a much lower level than before. So we don't get the blood sugar spikes. We don't get the insulin spikes, but then there's something called intermittent fasting or time restricted eating as well. So how does that look in picture form? Well, If you eat something and you're eating high carbohydrates, then just like before, we get the spike and then we get the insulin response and it's going to lag behind a little bit. But what happens when you get high blood sugars and they come down quickly, now you get hungry again and you learn to eat very frequent meals so you top off your blood sugar several times a day like this. And now here's what happens. Realize that this insulin was lagging behind. And by the time that insulin is ready to come down, we already have a new blood sugar spike. So this is not going to keep going down. It's going to increase to a higher level. And then as it starts to taper off, now we got another blood sugar spike and another and another and this is how high carb and frequent meals are going to drive up that insulin level and if this happened for a day or two during a party or in the summer when food was plentiful then we're going to recover from this during a time when there is less food but if there is always a feast now this level never comes down and over the years We never give the body a chance to balance out and we drive this higher and higher. So where time-restricted eating comes in then is if we eat this low carbohydrate, this high fat, high protein, or more protein and fat than we used to, then we're going to get a much lower spike like we said. But there's another benefit And that is with stable energy, and energy that lasts much longer, we don't have to eat so often. We still have plenty of energy circulating so we can eat again much later. And then we can also maybe skip some meals after dinner and we won't eat maybe so early in the morning. So we get a longer continuous period of fasting. So... The insulin is going to come, stay stable, and then it goes up and then it comes back down. And because the insulin was allowed to go back to baseline before we ate again, now we're starting from a lower level. And now we have that extended fasting. And now during the night and until we eat again, insulin is allowed to fall even further and this is how we reverse that escalating insulin level. And I'm sure you've also seen articles and I've even talked about how you can use apple cider vinegar and lemon and cinnamon and different herbal compounds and different things. And these are little tricks to add at the end. So first you reduce the carbs, then you do some time restricted eating. And these are gonna account for 95% of your results so they've done some research and they've shown that all things being equal these will still yield some benefit but it doesn't mean that they're as important as the top ones we talked about and it doesn't mean that you rely on these alone they're a super easy smart thing to add in conjunction with changing your lifestyle now let's talk about exercise because Exercise can absolutely help, but not for the reasons that people usually think. They typically think about burning calories. This silly notion that if I eat a cookie, then I have to exercise so many minutes to burn off the cookie. That is not how the body operates. Just forget about that. Like we talked about on the first slide there, those are the variables that we have to keep in mind. Exercise turns out to be absolutely necessary, but not for the reason people think. Exercise can be helpful, but the reason is that movement drives the brain. The brain controls everything about you. Every cell in your body depends on the brain's ability to link the cells together in a communication network. And the brain can manage resources in the body. The brain can reduce and manage stress levels in the body. And usually when we hear about weight loss and belly fat, they will tell us that exercise is the first thing. It's the primary mechanism. It's the most important thing that we can do. And that is also false. So yes, we want to do it. It is necessary, but it's not going to be the primary way that we're going to burn belly fat or lose weight. And here's how that can work. Let's say that you eat some food and let's call that 100 grams of carbohydrate. Then that carbohydrate is going to turn into blood sugar. It's going to get into the bloodstream relatively quickly. And then we need insulin to assist that glucose into the tissues. And it's going to get into every tissue in the body. But we're going to focus on primarily two just for our discussion here. So on the one hand, a lot of glucose is going to get into the muscle tissue. And after a meal, the muscles will actually absorb most of the glucose. They have a large reservoir. And the other tissue is the liver. So the liver stores carbohydrate in the form of glycogen and muscles can also store carbohydrates. And here's the really, really important thing to understand that if you are at rest, then the glucose going from the bloodstream into these tissues are always going to need insulin. However, If you are exercising, if that muscle is working and contracting, now that glucose can get into the muscle without insulin or with very, very little insulin. So basically, a working muscle is going to suck the glucose out of the bloodstream without needing insulin. So let's say hypothetically that we're going to put 50 grams Uh, into the liver and 50 grams into the muscle, that's 100 grams that need insulin if we're at rest. But if we're exercising, now 50 needs insulin and 50 is going to get sucked out of the bloodstream anyway. So in that sense, and this is just a hypothetical example, we would only need half as much insulin to handle that carbohydrate load. And that is how exercise can help improve insulin sensitivity by reducing the total carbohydrate load on the other tissues. However, it's not gonna be the primary mechanism because the liver is still sort of the central mechanism that if we have insulin resistance and we have a fatty liver, then we have to change our diet and we need to do some intermittent fasting to allow that liver to burn up some of that fat and become insulin sensitive again. The muscles working will suck the glucose out of the bloodstream, but they will not pull the fat straight out of the liver. It doesn't work that way. The next question, of course, is what type of exercise would we want to do? and. If you go on YouTube or you go online and you see exercise to reduce belly fat, 90% of that is going to talk about crunches. And why does that not work? Because crunches, again, is not going to change how the liver operates. It's not going to suck the, the fat out of the liver. And crunches are only going to affect a very small muscle group. And that's not going to pull a whole lot of glucose out either. It's going to pull a tiny little bit. But when people say that crunches are going to help you with belly fat, basically what they're implying is that you can pull the fat straight out of the fat cells on top of the muscle. But it doesn't work that way because there are many, many layers. There is no communication pathway there's no pipeline between this muscle and that fat just because they happen to be next to each other so crunches can be good for core strength if you do them properly but they're not going to be the way to burn belly fat so what do you do resistance training is great and when you put a load on your muscles you stimulate the muscles to grow especially if it's heavy, especially if you're near your limits for what you can perform. So this does two things. When you challenge a muscle, it will tend to grow. And if you maintain or increase your muscle mass, muscles are more metabolically active. So by maintaining or increasing your muscle mass, you will actually increase your basal metabolic rate. Resistance training or heavy weightlifting also will increase your growth hormone, which is a fat burning hormone. Most of the exercise you want to do is aerobic, meaning things like walking and biking, things that you can do for a very long period of time without getting exhausted. So you want to keep it below the level of huffing and puffing because then if you can provide oxygen for the exercise, that means you're burning mostly fat. As you start huffing and puffing, that means that you're changing, you're switching from the fat burning to the carbohydrate burning because as long as you have oxygen, you can burn fat. When that oxygen is not enough, now you have to start breaking down glucose. So if you're huffing and puffing, you are automatically switching somewhat. And the more intense that exercise is, the more you're going to switch to glucose. So does that mean that you can never do any anaerobic or any high intensity? No, it does not mean that at all. But the high intensity needs to be much shorter duration than the aerobic. And there's two reasons you want to keep the high intensity short duration. One is that you're switching to carbohydrate burning instead of burning the fat that you want to burn. And the second is that the higher the intensity, the more cortisol you're going to release and stimulate. And cortisol is a stress hormone, which leads us in to step number four. And most people don't really understand what stress is, even though it's a word that we use Every day, there's a whole lot more to it than just feeling overwhelmed than the emotion of stress. So if we create a little scenario here where we have a person who is in an environment and he's at rest and then something shows up where this person feels threatened. Now, this person's nervous system is going to react. And even if he was at peace and burning mostly fat, this body, the physiology of the body, is going to anticipate that he has to work, that he has to run and fight and flee and expend more energy. So now this body is going to release cortisol, which is a stress hormone. And the primary thing that that cortisol does is to increase blood glucose because blood sugar is a faster fuel than just fat. It's an additional fuel. So if we can ramp up the glucose, raise blood glucose a little bit, now we have more of an emergency fuel with which to escape that danger. But if this happens all the time, where this becomes a default baseline, now we're also going to increase cravings on a regular basis because If the body is trying to get more glucose, then it's going to tell you to go eat some sugar. And with more cortisol and more cravings, of course, now you're also going to bring up insulin. And again, chronicity will lead to insulin resistance. And when we talk about weight loss and belly fat, the rules are basically, there's like a 98% overlap. You do the same thing for both of them, except this part because even though stress is bad for weight loss as well, it is even worse for belly fat because cortisol will selectively put fat onto the torso. Everywhere from the hip to the head, that's where the fat accumulation is gonna happen much more when we have high cortisol. And hardly anyone ever talks about this. They talk about diet, they talk about exercise, but nobody realizes how incredibly important this is. So am I exaggerating the impact of of stress? Well, let's take a look at a piece of research from PubMed, where they talked about all these different things on how the stress affects hormones and cortisol and body type and behavior. So first, they start off saying that there is a strong relationship between hypothalamo pituitary adrenal axis. And don't worry, that's a lot of big words for stress response. It's how the brain reacts and it sends the signal down to the adrenals that can produce cortisol and adrenaline. And then they say there's a strong relationship between this stress response and the way the body uses energy. The energy homeostasis, which is basically another word for metabolism and how stress changes the priorities. And then they go on to verify what I just said, that patients with abdominal obesity will also have high cortisol levels. Then it gets really good because they go on to say that stress and glucocorticoids, meaning hormones that affect blood sugar like cortisol, which we just talked about, they act to control our behavior both in terms of food intake and energy expenditure. And it gets even better. They say in particular, this is known to increase consumption of foods that have been enriched with sugar and fat. Do you know what those foods are called? They're called comfort foods and junk foods and processed foods. So what they're saying plainly is that stress increases your cravings for junk. And I love this last one because they're saying that it is well known in all species that the way this stress response affects us is highly variable. So again, we can't compare one person to another and how they respond to stress. It is individual and variable. And usually when they talk about stress, they talk about managing it by avoiding it or distracting yourself. But you want to recondition your nervous system. The stress is not in the world. The events are in the world. The stress is your response to them and you can change those. You can recondition your nervous system. So when you do breathing exercises, for example, you're helping your body balance the stress response. When you breathe in, you fire off the fight-flight. When you breathe out, you fire off the feed-breathe, the parasympathetic, the calming response. And if you do this on a regular basis, it goes beyond the 5 or 10 minutes that you do the breathing. It's a skill that you entrain in your nervous system. And the next thing that you can do is mindfulness. This is one of the most important things. We've heard the word, but what does it mean? You have to make it really important to pay attention to how you feel. As you're driving through traffic, you've got nothing better to do but to ask yourself, how am I feeling? Am I feeling the way I want to? Can I focus differently? Can I change something? And if you pay attention, there's always something that you can do. Meditation is another huge thing that you can do. And meditation is simply stilling and calming your mind. It's tricking your mind into stop doing the things that it always does, right? There's guided meditations that will help you along there and exercise is another way to deal with stress. Because like I said, exercise fires up the brain when the brain is working better, it can control stress better. And another aspect of stress is sleep. We need to get good quality and quantity sleep. And if you don't get good sleep, then the very next morning, your cortisol levels, your stress hormone levels, are going to be higher. You're going to be more insulin resistant after a single night of poor or insufficient sleep. And a lot of people have trouble sleeping, but realize that all the things on this list, the breathing exercises and the exercise and the meditation, they all help to calm you down and put your nervous system in balance to where you can sleep better. And step number five is to develop a holistic lifestyle. Holistic is not some mysterious word. It's not about holy. It's not about crystals or burning incense or becoming a mystic. Holistic simply means that we look at the whole body. We look at the whole picture. We look at all the different aspects that influence the body. And we need to understand something called the triad of health. It's like three legs on a three legged table that the human body has a chemical aspect to it, it has a structural or mechanical aspect to it, and it has an emotional or a stress aspect to it, just like we saw in that paper. And what this means is that on the chemical side, there are things that we can do better, things we can improve on and things that we can avoid. So on the chemical side, we have nutrients that build us up and we need to learn what those are and improve those and get a steady supply on a regular basis. And then there are things that are toxic, things that interfere with our biochemistry and those are things that we need to learn to avoid. Same thing with structure. There is movement which is positive. There is good posture which helps the body maintain proper signals for the nervous system that maintains proper movement. And then there is sedentary lifestyle and poor posture that interferes with mechanical signals. And then of course there is the emotional side. So there are things that make us feel good and there are things that make us feel bad. And all of these are equally important. And sometimes people they talk, oh we just need to exercise or we just need to eat less carbs or more vegetables or whatever it is that's in fashion this week, but we need to understand that the body needs a holistic lifestyle. There's three legs to the table. If you do them all, then your chances of getting healthy, not just losing belly fat, but developing optimal health is going to be so much better. And the more that you can incorporate all aspects, the more you're going to notice that you feel better, not just in the things that you had problems with before, but you notice your focus, your mood, your happiness. Everything starts getting better because everything feeds into each other. And then realize that once you start being really happy and you start feeling really good, well, that's just the price you have to pay for being healthy. If you enjoyed this video, you're going to love that one. And if you truly want to master health by understanding how the body really works, make sure you subscribe, hit that bell, and turn on all the notifications so you never miss a life-saving video.